The sermon is entitled, The Progress of Redemption in Nehemiah, the Sabbath Day. Beauty, Bounty, and Beneficence. The Sabbath Day. Beauty, Bounty, and Beneficence. Last week we did also hear a sermon from the book of Nehemiah, and that was on the topic and this idea uh, that in order to walk with God, that uh, the nature of kingdom living, this side of heaven, was this idea of building and fighting. That if we are to build, and God has in fact called us to build, as the Lord Jesus Christ gave a great commission, then we also recognize that we must fight. But there's another major theme in the book of Nehemiah that's very appropriate for us today, and that is the topic of the Lord's Day, of the Sabbath Day. Beauty, bounty, and beneficence. And so I'd like to draw your attention to this today. And as we begin this, I'd like to introduce this with children, a day at the sea. So let's go to the sea, why don't we? Let's think about the beauties of the sea. If you're like me, you might prefer to go in the spring or in the fall when it's a little bit cooler. But let's consider the rhythmic beauty of the ocean as it comes in wave after wave. Are you with me? Are you watching the little birds that run along the beach there as they look for things to eat? Are you considering the pelicans as they crash into the water and then come out with the fish? Are you considering the fact that there are no allergens in that cool air that's running across the ocean as you take in the smells and the sights of the ocean? A day at the beach. You've prepared for this day at the seaside. There's no school books. There's no cell phone. No shop talk. No cooking. You've prepared meals beforehand, enjoying each other's company the beauty of the seaside, all of these things. Is this laborious and oppressive to you? Is this heavy or binding in any way? A beautiful day at the seaside that you prepared for and that you are now enjoying. With the possibility of truly cultivating and enjoying God's creation with those you are with, Do you really feel robbed to be without a video gaming date? Or the shrill whistle of the soccer referee? The demands of your boss or the needs of your customers? Do you lament that you can't go shoe shopping? Or attend the seminar on time management? Or see the mind-blowing car race? Or do routine maintenance on your home? Is that hard for you not to do on this day when you've gone to the seaside to enjoy all of God's creation? with those that you love. And so let us think about this as we approach the Lord's Day. The subject matter of this exposition is the Sabbath day. It is the Lord's Day. It is a topic that I must tell you is absolutely not welcome in most evangelical churches today. And I will tell you that the express purpose that your preacher today entered back into the Navy to be a chaplain was it so that I could enjoy the freedom to proclaim the truths of the gospel that were not welcome in the Lord's house. I'd like to read for you Navy Regulation number 0817. This is a section of the Navy regulations given to the commanding officers. 
Except by reason of necessity or in the interest of the welfare and morale of the command, the performance of work shall not be required on Sunday. Except by reason of necessity, ships shall not be sailed, nor units of the aircraft or troops be deployed on Sunday. Second paragraph, divine services shall be conducted on Sunday if possible. All assistance and encouragement shall be given to chaplains in the conduct of these services, and music shall be made available if practicable. A suitable space shall be designated and properly rigged for the occasion. And at the disposal of the chaplain is the ability to travel or to be traveling to a ship. So oddly enough, a Navy chaplain in the United States Navy has at his fingertips a helicopter to fly to other ships. I can take the captain's gig and make my way to another boat so that I can preach the gospel in the Navy. But this subject, this subject, the Lord's Day, is not welcome in many churches in this day. But nonetheless, it is a great subject of the Lord, and so I'd like to draw your attention to this. The U.S. Navy is on paper Sabbatarian. Why isn't the church? Joseph Piper, who is the President Emeritus of Greenville Presbyterian Seminary, also wrote a book on the Lord's Day, and as have many others. And he poses a few questions. Number one, is it not possible that one reason for the spiritual weakness of the church is her failure to honor God on the Lord's Day? Is it not possible that one of the reasons our churches are not more effective in reaching the lost is because we are not practicing the Sabbath-keeping that brings us victory? Number three, is it not possible that you continue to fall under the dominion of a particular sin because you've refused to sanctify God's day in your heart? Have we not failed to utilize one of the God-given means of victory, the Sabbath day? What would you think of me as one who is called upon by the Lord to assist you in your spiritual walk, what would you think of me if I withheld from you that which was to your great benefit spiritually? What would you think of me if I, if I hid that from you, if I didn't consider this, this great idea, this great subject matter, this thing in which God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, of mankind and all that swarms in the oceans, this, that which has been designed to regulate your very life, I certainly wouldn't think much of myself were I to keep this from you, and surely the Lord doesn't either. And as we enter into this, we will also be looking at the subject of the Lord's Day in a reverse chronology, if you will. The reality is is that the book of Nehemiah will be the youngest portion of Scripture that we will look at uh, primarily for this text, and then we will walk our way backwards all the way to Genesis chapter 2. So let's begin here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And we have the Lord's Day, as the Puritans would say, the market day of the soul. The market day of the soul. So let's look here in Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And what we see here is that Ezra was asked by the people to read the law of God. Does that surprise you? 
So it seems that when we look at at, uh, the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8, that God had stirred the people so that they, in fact, called upon the Word of God to be proclaimed. Verse 3, all gathered at the square and listened attentively from morning until midday. Read in your hearing was 12 verses from the chapter of Nehemiah, and I commend you for listening to those 12 verses because the reality is is that most people that are gathered likely on Saturday evening because they don't honor the Sabbath day, but nonetheless, many people are simply unable to listen to 12 verses of Scripture read in a row. Much less consider hearing attentively the Word of God proclaimed from morning until midday, delighting themselves in the Word and the ways of God, hearing its explanation by those around them. That was the case here in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. I encourage you again, this is, this is a joyful time. It's a sobering time for them. They're hearing the Word of God and they're also taking it to heart. The Bible says in verse 5 of chapter 8 here in Nehemiah, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people as he opened the people stood. And then they bowed their heads to the ground in worship. We see an explanation of the Word of God here in verses 7 and 8. The Bible says they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood their reading. It's certainly appropriate for you to ask the question, what is this thing of preaching? Where did did this come from? Where did it come that we have a proclamation of the Word of God and then an explanation that follows? Well, look no further than Nehemiah chapter 8 for this idea that, of course, wasn't created in the book of Nehemiah. As a matter of fact, the reality is, is we've already understood, as we considered this build and fight idea, that they had, in fact, forgotten one of the great feasts of Israel the Feasts of Booths. They read it in the book and they were convicted that they weren't entering into this holy day of God. And so they had no memory of the Word and the way of God. But yet they were eager to hear the Word read and explained to them. Verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why do they weep? A lot of people hear the word of God and they don't weep. They're not excited or joyful either, right? It seems laborious to them. It's as if they'd rather... They'd rather take work to the beach, right? No. The Word of God to them, they wept because it struck their heart. It did exactly what God said it would do. As far as the division of joints and marrow, soul and spirit, the Word of God incisively is reaching us by the power of the Holy Spirit and it lays open for us and reveals that which must be Remove such that we can delight ourselves more fully in the will and the ways of God. And it is for us, as we consider again Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9, it's the glories of God, children. Again, it's the, it's the wonders that God has given to us and made for us to delight even on this day, the Lord's day. 
Do we see it that way? They had to be reminded as they wept, as they took in the Word of God, confessed and repented of their sins. They were, of course, reminded to be joyful. Because this is the Lord's day. And it's a good day for us. And that's what the great governor of the land, Nehemiah, as well as Ezra, said. Now, this, this very thing is repeated again in chapter 9 on a different occasion. The Bible says in chapter 9, verse 1, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, confessing and rejoicing associated with the proclamation of the Word of God. Verses 5 and 6, these Levites said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God. Again, rejoicing. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted over all blessing and praise. Children, listen. You are the Lord, they said. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Think of it. Right now, at this moment, the host of heaven is declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This one who created the heavens and the earth. All the glories of heaven are displayed and we too join them. As the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, we join a cloud of witnesses and we worship the Lord today. It's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's, it's spiritual life and nourishment to us. And so God has showing us this right here in the book of Nehemiah. Now, let's go back and see the foundations upon which the fathers and the people of Israel stood as they considered the Lord's Day. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 58, read in your hearing this morning for the call to worship. I draw your attention to Isaiah chapter 58. written long before Nehemiah, about 750 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the prophet Isaiah declaring to us the purpose of the Sabbath day. And what we see right here, we're not going to take the time to read the entire passage in Isaiah 58, but nonetheless, what Isaiah does here was he, is he takes us from pharisaical formalism in the Sabbath day to that which, in fact, God had designed for it to be. The beautiful purpose, the biblical beauty of the Lord's Day, a promise, a promise. And it might be helpful for us children to think about how is it that God comes to us? Does He come to us making demands? Or does He come to us making promises to us? And that's exactly what He does here in Isaiah chapter 58. We see that the Lord steps into His same character as He always does. He comes to His people making promises to them. How is that? But yet again, when we receive the law of God from a pharisaical formalism, we get a very wrong idea. But we don't receive the law of God from Pharisees. We receive the law of God from our Father in heaven and from our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Isaiah is doing here in Isaiah chapter 58. And he, he ends up 
in, in verses 13 and 14 with what we see here, the beauty, the bounty, and the beneficence of the Lord's Day. Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says that in Matthew chapter 8, excuse me, Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, and in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Lord Jesus says this astounding statement. The Sabbath was made for man. And you may read Matthew chapter 12 and get the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ is somehow changing the Sabbath. But no, what He is declaring is that from eternity past, this is the purpose of the Sabbath day. We receive the law of God and the goodness of God from Jesus Christ, not the Pharisees. And so we can delight ourselves in this that God has given to us. Not to create a legalistic entanglement that stifles people, but to free the people of God for the wonderful privilege of worshiping Him and enjoying Him. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight... And the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly. Now friends, those of you that took the first computer class three decades ago, understood the if-then statement, right? If this happens, then this will happen, right? And so, that's not a new idea, by the way. It's right here in Isaiah. Right? Chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. If this happens, then this will happen. So men, are you still frustrated that our day at the beach didn't include you listening to all your boss's demands? Are you disappointed that you're not going to be able to work on your house on this day at the beach? And so the Lord calls us again to this which He has designed to regulate our very lives. He says, turn back your foot from doing your pleasure. Invest yourself in my business, not your business today. If you come away from this passage of Scripture thinking that God is not infinitely interested in your work, you would be wrong. The reason that you need the Lord's Day is because God is very interested in your work. Have you ever heard the simple notion of diminishing returns? You've all entered into when you work and work and work and you come to the point where, you know what? I need to stop. Because I'm really not getting anywhere. I'm moving forward one step and I'm moving backwards two. Does it surprise you? That God has designed one day in seven to be a day which is devoted to something different. He says, if we call the Sabbath a delight, if we step into intentionally cultivating a delight in contemplating God, His Word, His works, and His ways, and His people. If we honor it, not going our own ways, not seeking our own pleasure or talking idly, Now, children, you may get the idea that God is somehow saying in the fourth commandment uh, that it's okay for you to sin six days of the week, but make sure you're really careful on the Lord's Day. 
That's not what he's saying here. Again, our God is not in opposition to our own pleasure and that which delights us. He is in opposition to the work of our hands, which He uses for our own provision and joy and involvement in this world. He's not opposed to that. But He has something better for us on this day, such that everything else will also enjoy a greater depth and goodness. These things are not in the category of sin on other days of the week. The Lord, again, is not here telling us that sin any other day is not as bad as sin on the Lord's day. It has to do with setting the day aside for a special purpose. What does it mean to make a day holy? What does it mean? What has God done? He has declared... In a special way, this is mine. And it's for a beautiful thing. And this is how you can enjoy it. Man, have you ever gotten a tool that you just so look forward to, but you really didn't know how to use it? And then all of a sudden you get a friend, and he comes over to your house, and he watches you use this thing, and he's like, hey brother, did you ever think about this? And you say, wow. This is like an altogether different thing here. And so the Lord's Day is like that. If we aren't, as God's people, delighting ourselves in the Lord's Day, then the reality is we're doing it wrong. Right? We're not doing it right. And He tells us how to do it right here in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. God doesn't forbid our work or pleasure on the Lord's Day because He's opposed to work or pleasure, but because He's calling us to a greater pleasure that He has in store for us in this day. So again, this is a conditional promise, right? If, if, if. And then verse 14, then. Then you shall take delight. Then you will ride on the heights of the earth. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, he says in verse 14. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now what does that mean? Well, I encourage you to think again of this word, beneficence. Beneficence. Say it with me. Beneficence. Maybe you'll remember it. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to feed on the heritage of Jacob. This is what God has promised. These are the good things of God to enjoy the benefits of being in Christ, the benefits of salvation, of adoption, the assurance of salvation, boldness in prayer, confidence. Does that sound good to you? These aren't, these aren't merely privileges to memorize, but they're spiritual pleasures to be enjoyed. The question for us is not... Have you met the Lord's Day? Have you experienced the Lord's Day? You know, we want you, as you enter into our fellowship, not to merely meet us, we want you to experience us. And venture to guess that some of us are a bit more of an experience than others are. But nonetheless, this is what God has for us today. In this day, the Lord's Day, this is not, again, merely a list of privileges to memorize, but spiritual pleasures to be enjoyed. Consider beauty. Consider beauty. Is God interested in beauty? Yes. As a matter of fact, if I know anything about God, I know this. He doesn't make ugly. God doesn't make ugly. 
He makes beauty. And this is a day of beauty. Take delight in the Lord. Contemplate the glory of God and of His kingdom. Hear this truth proclaimed. Experience the Holy Spirit's application of His word to you. Lastly, bounty. Feed you with the heritage of Jacob. How does God give? How does He give? Does He give in a meager way? Or does He give in a bountiful way? Our God is a bountiful God to feed us with the heritage of Jacob. Isaiah chapter 55, a few pages to the left in your Bible, verses 1 through 3 says this, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Friends, this is another promise from God. This is another promise from God right here in Isaiah chapter 55. You want to know about the bountiful feeding on the heritage of Jacob? He says it right here. This is the gospel. We're we're in fact the only ones that can enjoy the Sabbath day in this way. He makes such promises to us. Promises that can only be enjoyed with the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, spoken of right here in Isaiah chapter 55 and Isaiah chapter 58. Come and buy without money and without price that which you desperately must have. Now I draw your attention as we move our way backwards in time to Exodus chapter 20. We will address the Lord's commandments here in Exodus chapter 20, and we'll not mention that they're also, of course, republished in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. I draw your attention to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the fourth commandment. We see that it uh, does a number of things, not least of which we have here, and we'll notice this in the confession if the Lord gives us time to do that. But nonetheless, what we see, and we're focusing, of course, on the fourth commandment today, the Lord's Day. What we see here is that the Lord's Day and the commandment of the Lord's Day is what is considered a positive and a moral command. 
Now, a positive command is kind of like what we'll look at in Genesis chapter 2 when the Lord told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that was considered a positive command. Now, the reason that it's described as a positive command is simply this, that the fruit of the tree was not inherently evil, right? It wasn't magic. It didn't look evil, right? But God had told them not to eat of that tree. And so that's a positive command. And we know, we recognize that when they, when they uh, sinned, when they had determined that in fact they would declare what is right and what is wrong, and that they were going to be wiser than God was in that case, they then experienced for the first time that which would absolutely be calamitous on all that followed them. They entered into sinning against the Lord. What we see in the fourth commandment is a moral command. It's a reflection of the character of God, as are the other nine commandments, but also in a positive sense we see uh, that the positive aspect of this command is simply which day of the week it occurred. We understand that before the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, this command was applicable to the seventh day, and now it is applicable to the first day. And that would be, as the Orthodox uh, Bible students have said, long ages past is this aspect of the positive portion of this command. Now, I'd like to draw your attention as we continue to move backwards in time to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we've already referenced the positive command that the Lord gives in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, in which He ends up saying, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But let's look at verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 2. So children, in verse 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis 2, we see that the Lord has completed the creation of the world, of the heavens, of the earth, of the seas, of the land. He's made all the creatures. He's made man and woman here. And we look into chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. The Bible says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. God's resting, His work as Creator is completed. God's rest, not a cessation from all His work. The Lord Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. What is He doing? Well, He's governing and maintaining all that He has made. He's in the process, of course, of the work of redemption. God rested to express His delight in His creation. By resting, God pictured the rest He would provide for man. Thus God formally blessed and sanctified the day. Now lastly, I'd like to draw your attention to our confession in chapter 22. Paragraph 7, it is the law of nature that in, a, in general a portion of time is spe- specified by God should be set apart for the worship of God. 
So by his word and a positive moral and perpetual commandment that obligates everyone in every age, he has specifically appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to him. And then I'll go on and read chapter 22, uh, paragraph 8 here. The Sabbath is kept holy to the Lord when people have first prepared their hearts appropriately and arranged their everyday affairs in advance. They then observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their secular employment and recreation. Not only that, but they also fill the whole time with public and private acts of worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. What is it about the Lord's Day? Well, I I often wonder what it is that seems so offensive to people about the Lord's Day. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, There are, no doubt, a number of things that come to mind. The day regulates not one, but all seven, perhaps, is one reason. That is true. You see, in order for us to delight ourselves, think back to the beach, children. In order for us to really... Enjoy the beach. There's got to be a lot of preparations that are done to leave our house. Right? If you're at my house, you're going to actually have to provide several hundred gallons of water for very large animals to drink. And you're going to have to, you're going to, have to make sure uh, that everything is all set up right, in your home, and you may actually need someone to come uh, and watch over your place. You're going to have to carry uh, all kinds of food that you're not going to be able to prepare at the beach, right? You're going to have to think about all sorts of things. But all of that is well worth the effort for you to enjoy all the beauties that God has given to the beach as well as your family. You see that everything... Everything on the schedule was cleared and made ready for this one day, right? So that you can then enjoy that day. Why seven days with one rest? Is a seven-day week merely an accident of history? I don't think so. I don't think so. But if you wanted to, you could go back and ask those old Frenchies during the French Revolution because they, you see, intended that everything be banished regarding God. And so they decided to attempt a ten-day week. It failed miserably. Because, you see, God's creation doesn't work on a ten-day week. It works on six workdays, as the command says, six days you shall labor And it works on one day away from that, the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day isn't only about one day. It's about all seven days in the week. Again, this may be one of the most significant reasons most evangelicals who claim to be living out the Scriptures have confidently asserted that the Lord's Day, according to the fourth commandment, is no longer binding. Perhaps they think in their mind, surely the Lord wouldn't impose the possibility of delighting myself, especially in Him for one day in seven, without asking me. As if He knew what was best for me. That's one of the things that's so offensive to a sovereign God. I encounter people that are absolutely shocked 
that the God of the universe makes decisions or that He is determined one thing from another. They cannot believe their minds to think that our God, the most powerful being in the universe that created everything that we see and that we can't see from absolutely nothing, they're shocked that He would make a determination about anything. But God knows what's best for us. He comes to us with promises. He loves us. And He is determined that this is so wonderful and beautiful, the beneficence, the beauty and the bounty of the Lord's Day. We see that. The fulfillment of the fourth command in Christ doesn't mean the law is now a dead letter. Christ fulfilled all the commands, and the Holy Spirit applied this to us for our justification. Again, likely you have heard that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the fourth commandment. Yes, in fact, He did. It's the only reason you can enjoy your justification. But He did the same thing for all the other nine commands, right? You see, the Lord Jesus Christ had to enter actively into righteousness for us. We are, in fact, saved by works. But not our own. We're saved by the works of Christ. And Christ, at every step, obeyed perfectly the law of God for us. But do we treat the other commandments this way? Do we say, do we now say, Woo, I'm so glad Jesus fulfilled the eighth commandment. I can steal with abandon now, with no regard for my neighbor's well-being. Jesus paid it all at the cross. Further, there are tremendous benefits for our families and joy that is perpetuated and deepened when we fully enter into the seventh commandment, for instance. Our personal relationships would be painful and shallow if we never maintain the ninth commandment. Is it laborious for you to enjoy the fact that you're actually honest with the people around you? What is it like when you just simply tell lie after lie after lie and break the ninth commandment? How do your relationships go? Men? Break the seventh commandment one time. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Was that just some sort of mean, harsh command that God gave to us? We would be fools not to recognize that this is a beautiful thing that I cultivate an affection and a love for one woman. And that in this beautiful relationship, my life and the lives of those that would follow me can flourish because I entered into, albeit imperfectly, the seventh commandment of God. New creation echoes and restores the original creation. The original creation that associated with it a Sabbath day. Why would not the restoration have a Sabbath? All pointing to the eternal Sabbath in heaven. We are not yet in heaven. I'm going to say that one more time. We are not yet in heaven. That's the eternal Sabbath. Right? And so, let us not enter too fully into that which hasn't occurred yet. Right? And so God, again, has given us this one day in seven. We are not yet in heaven. Thus, we are not yet enjoying the eternal Sabbath. In this sinful world, it's no wonder that we misunderstand and misapply the Lord's commandments. 
The Sabbath day will be transformed when we recognize we must run to Christ and enjoy the true Sabbath rest. This day, this market day of the soul, this day that is beautiful, this day that is bountiful, this day that is filled with beneficence from God, this day, a sweet and joyful day, is only possible because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We should ask ourselves the question, those of you that are yet unredeemed, what are you so excited about today? What is it that fuels your life today? Is it not our relationship to Christ? Think again of Nehemiah and Ezra's Sabbath day. A true marketplace of the soul. Now men, you don't get quite as excited about this as some of the ladies do, but nonetheless, when you go to a festive market... Is it not a delight? You see the sights and the sounds and the smells and all of the colors and you think about how you can serve your family in this way and the same idea is transferred to the Lord's Day, the market day of the soul. Except we're talking about spiritual things, not physical things. No less real, but spiritual nonetheless. And so we know that we have work to do, of course, A few questions. What does it take to draw you away from the activities of the Lord's Day? What would you allow to take the place of the Lord's Day activities? Why would you step away from such glorious benefits? The bounty and the beauty of the Lord's Day. I have my own personal Sabbath day sort of beginning, if you will, 33 years ago. That wasn't when I was redeemed. I had already been saved. But I'm going to save that story for another day. What I would like to say, as we all are more familiar with the story of Eric Little, the great missionary to China who died in an internment camp from the Japanese. And Eric Little, of course, was in the 1924 Olympics. And when Eric Little understood that his race, the 100-meter run, would be run on the Lord's Day, he decided not to run and was posted for the 400-meter event. And before he ran that race, one of the helpers, one of the masseurs, apparently gave him a note that referenced 1 Samuel chapter 2. And in it, in this little slip of paper... It said, I will honor him who honors me. So this this one who gave the slip of paper to Eric Little, he referenced the Lord. He said, I know the good book says this, God honors the one who honors me. Now you know the rest of the story. Eric Little went on to win and set a world record for the 400 meter run at 47 seconds. Children try to run a quarter mile in 47 seconds. Eric Liddell did that. I will honor those who honor me. That's what the Lord says. May we step into that today on His day. Let's pray.